This is Sam Swartz and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin Secretary of State Doug LaFollette announced today that he plans to seek re-election in the fall. The Associated Press reports that the 81-year-old Democrat pointed to the 2020 presidential election as his reason to run, saying that he wants the oversight of elections to stay in the hands of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Since the election, state Republicans have pushed for elections to instead be placed in the hands of the sitting Secretary of State. LaFollette will be seeking his 12th term in the position, having served Wisconsin in the role for the last 45 years. He will face four GOP candidates for the position this fall, State Representative Amy Laudenbach of Clinton, Dimitri Becker, Jay Schroeder, and Justin Schmitka. Also from the Associated Press, State Representative Tim Rantham of Campbellsport said that he wanted to punch Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, quote, right in the nose. The statement came after he was kicked out of a meeting to discuss decertifying the state's 2020 presidential election results. Rantham made the statement in an interview yesterday. Rantham plans to run for governor this fall with overturning the election results sitting as one of his main election platforms. President Biden had won Wisconsin by about 21,000 votes, a result which has been defended in multiple lawsuits, recounts, and reviews. None of those reviews found any evidence of widespread voter fraud, and overturning the election results has been repeatedly called illegal by Voss himself. Ramthun went, went on to clarify to the Associated Press via text that he did not actually want to punch Voss and that it was just a common phrase. Voss later dismissed the remark as, quote, foolish, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The chair of the Wisconsin Elections Commission has joined a lawsuit to fight subpoenas from 2020 presidential elections investigator Michael Gableman. The lawsuit seeks to block closed-door meetings between Gableman and multiple Wisconsin Elections Commission's officials. The Capitol Times reports that Ann Jacobs was allowed to join the lawsuit in a court ruling earlier today. Also allowed to join the lawsuit was Chief Information Officer of the Wisconsin Department of Administration, Trina Zanow, and an unnamed technical service employee with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. They joined Wisconsin Elections Commission's Administrator, Megan Wolf, and Immigration Rights Group Voices de la Frontera in the lawsuit. A group of residents in Mount Pleasant have filed a petition to try and stop the Village Board of Trustees from extending their term lengths. The Wisconsin Examiner reports that the trustees voted earlier this year to extend their term lengths from two years to three years. The petition was filed by the watchdog group A Better Mount Pleasant, who say that residents are concerned that the election official, elected officials are not listening to their concerns. The issue stems from the Foxconn project that was supposed to be built in the village but never materialized. The petition, which was signed by over 1,200 residents, will force a referendum to put the issue into the hands of Mount Pleasant residents. And now on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout continues our spring election coverage with a trip to Cottage Grove.
Dane County Board District 36 represents the village of Cottage Grove as well as portions of East Madison and Sun Prairie. The two candidates running for that seat are incumbent Melissa Ratcliffe and challenger Andrew McKinney. Melissa Ratcliffe has lived in the district for the past eight years and works as a paralegal at Eisenberg Law Offices. She was first elected to the seat of district supervisor in 2018. She has also served as a trustee for the village of Cottage Grove and the Cottage Grove Plan Commission. Here are some of her top issues. I want to work on addressing our county's broadband needs, whether that relates to gaining access in areas without it, helping people to gain access through affordability, or helping them to gain access through reliability. I also wanna work towards addressing the needs of our senior population, including transportation and housing, and look forward to hearing more from the newly formed regional housing strategy with the county. Her challenger, Andrew McKinney, declined to be interviewed for this story, but WORT did speak with McKinney in 2018 when he ran for a seat on the Monona Grove School Board. He beat out three other challengers in that election and currently serves as the vice president of the Monona Grove School Board. McKinney also serves on the Dane County Youth Commission. In 2020, he lost a bid for state senate to current senator Melissa Agard. McKinney grew up in Gary, Indiana, and moved to Dane County when he was in high school. After serving in the U.S. Army, McKinney went on to get a degree in business management and a master's in education counseling from Concordia University. McKinney told WORT in 2018 when he was running for Monona Grove School Board that he considers himself an underdog. I have learned. I went to the military because I failed out of college the f first time I went because I was not prepared. I want to bring all that back, my military, what I've learned in my life, and bring that back to the table to kids who need that direction. And again, I'm a very tall black man, so a lot of things have come as an underdog, and I've been getting turned from a lot of things. But my passion of coaching, mentoring, teaching, counseling kids, and I just want to do well for my community, and hopefully I can get everybody's vote. In an interview with Madison 365, he says, as a disabled veteran, one of his biggest focuses is providing resources for underrepresented and ignored communities. He says that, as a black man who grew up in Gary, Indiana, and later Madison, he understands the racial disparities that exist in Dane County. Ratcliffe says that one of the biggest issues facing the county is equal access to broadband. Ratcliffe is the chair of the Broadband Task Force here in Dane County, which was created last year to study internet access access in Dane County and to figure out how to expand access to underserved communities. Broadband access is a huge issue that affects everyone and especially our rural areas in Dane County because our maps, our current maps through the PSC, the Public Service Commission, are inaccurate. So it makes it look like Dane County has really good access to broadband when we know that's not the case. That task force is set to present their findings on how to address broadband access later this summer. McKinney says that a main focus for him is eliminating racial disparities in Dane County. His campaign website mentions improving mental health and homelessness services in Dane County as other top issues. One place where they seem to agree is the Dane County Jail Consolidation Project. 
McKinney told the Wisconsin State Journal that the project needs to happen. He believes that a new jail could work with nonprofit organizations in the community to address the racial disparities within the criminal justice system. Ratcliffe helped to lead the charge to get the project moving forward again after the price tag for the original jail skyrocketed over the pandemic. With the help of other supervisors, she co-wrote the new plan that would allow the aging jail in the city-county building to close while bringing the project closer to its original budget. Ratcliffe and McKinney will face off during the April 5th spring election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. On or before Halloween of this year, the town of Madison will cease to exist and residents will be absorbed into two cities, Madison and Fitchburg. Approximately 5,000 residents will become residents of the city of Madison and about 1,400 will become residents of the city of Fitchburg. WORT reporter Andy Burrow has more. At an informational meeting last night, Water Quality Manager Joseph Grand and other City of Madison officials discussed changes current Town of Madison residents can expect to see when they join the city in October. So for those customers that are not currently on city water and not receiving a water bill from the, from the, from the utility, uh, they will receive a municipal services bill that will look something like this, or at least it will have these charges on it. We'll have public fire protection, which is a small charge, there will be a stormwater charge and there will be an urban forestry charge. At the same time, some residents voice concern about seeing an increase in their property taxes. In a 2020 interview with the City of Madison's Engineering Division's podcast, Madison Planning Division Director Heather Stouter acknowledged a tax hike is likely. So they'll, so they'll see an increase in service availability, um, representation, and also on the flip side of that, and one thing we're keeping a close eye on is a, a likely increase in property tax for for property owners. Stouter adds that while renters may not directly see an increase in property taxes, they still might feel the tax hike after landlords pass on the cost of higher property taxes. She says that's something the city is keeping a close eye on. The situation is different in neighboring Fitchburg, which is absorbing approximately 1,400 residents from the town of Madison. Fitchburg City Administrator Chad Breckland emphasize the new services those residents will have access to. So we have a wider range of services that we provide here in the city of Fitchburg by a, a dedicated team of employees who are obviously interested in, in, uh, in the new neighborhood that's coming in from the town of Madison. And, you know, we'll look to do an assessment of, of facilities such as park amenities, and roads uh, in that particular neighborhood as an example and, uh, you know, make necessary improvements that may be uh, necessary in that area. The city of Madison has set up community navigators for the change, and more informational meetings are coming in June and August. Many details are available at cityofmadison.com slash townofmadison. If you live in the town of Madison, you can get your question answered by emailing townofmadisonattachment at cityofmadison or calling 608-267-1188. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Andy Barrow. It's now 6.17 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
As the invasion of Ukraine continues, Latvian Americans have shown their support for Ukrainian Americans to condemn the Russian invasion. Madison Magazine editor Maja Invice, a Latvian American, recently wrote an essay for the magazine to talk about her heritage and the support her community has shown for Ukraine across the world. She spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout earlier today about her essay. So, Maya, to start things off, your family came to America from Latvia. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Tell me about your Latvian heritage. Yeah, so my, I actually, so three of my four grandparents were born in Latvia. Um, I know one of my grandparents' stories pretty well. Um, the other two, unfortunately, don't. Um, but my opups, who is my dad's dad, um, he immigrated here in the 1940s from Latvia. Um, he was born near the capital city, Riga. And then from there, he essentially moved west into Poland and then into Germany um, before becoming sponsored by a family in Milwaukee. And so later in the 40s, he was able to finally get to the U.S. after escaping um, from Latvia during that time period. And so your family, they've experienced a war with Russia before, back when it was the Soviet Union. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, like a lot of Baltic families and Latvian families, um, my family definitely <laughs> directly saw a lot of what was happening with the Soviet Union. Um, I know one of my family members, um, her, grand, or her dad and her um, godfather actually, they were um, shot and killed on the very first night, um, which in Latvian history is like a very, very big deal. It's a Remembrance Day now um, in June 14th, 1941. And so those are my family members directly that were impacted by that. Um, and I know other family members were sent to the gulags in Siberia. Um, so it was really fortunate that my OPUPS was able to escape in the first place um, and find shelter. They weren't completely like away from harm the entire time. Um, my opups actually, while he was in Germany, they were staying in a home and across the way, uh, a house was completely bombed to the actual floor and there's nothing left. It was just a gigantic hole. Um, but my grandpa was actually like right in that house in the basement. He said it just filled up with so much with smoke um, and he could feel the ground shake because of the bombs falling. Now I want to sort of get into your heritage a little bit. So you are a Latvian American. And what has your experience as a Latvian American been like here in Wisconsin? It's been really, really great. Um, I've So I have grew up in Indiana, um, and I was super involved in the Latvian um, community in Indianapolis growing up. Um, so from basically four years old when I started going to Latvian school um, to graduation from high school when I moved to Wisconsin, um, but throughout my entire life, I was doing Lat yeah, Latvian school. I did a Latvian sum uh, summer immersion program in Michigan. And so throughout my life, it's just been something super close to me. And I've done folk dancing for my entire life. I've participated in Latvian choirs. And I'm fortunate because there's a group in Milwaukee that does folk dancing here in Wisconsin. So I'm able to dance with them and prep for song festivals and things like that. Uh, most recently, I actually sang virtually with a choir from Canada, and we were able to go to the Latvian Song Festival in Latvia in 2018. So something that you mentioned in your essay 
kind of briefly is how the history of Latvia and a lot of Baltic nations, how it is told from a Latvian school versus how a public school when you got into college. Can you go into that a little bit for me? Yeah, so I feel like throughout my education, it wasn't really talked about a lot in public schools. I feel like most of the time when we did talk about Latvia, it was just kind of like a little blip when you're finally talking about the end of the Soviet Union falling in the 1990s and kind of just being like, these countries now exist. Um, And that was a lot of the rhetoric that I heard growing up was just, oh, all of a sudden these countries now exist. But Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania and even Ukraine have had long histories before the Soviet Union. And I know like the language has existed forever, it feels like. Um, But it just doesn't get really talked about. And so in Latvian school and Growing up, um, I just got to hear a lot more about like the cultures that existed, the different people and the different cultures that we still maintain today, like everything from folk songs and from poems and all sorts of different things that are super important to my culture, but were just never talked about in school apart from, oh, this was a former Soviet Union country and now it exists today. And even yeah, even in college, I heard one of my classes, it was specifically on Eastern Europe in the 1900s. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be finally my opportunity. I'm going to hear all about Latvia. I'm going to hear all about, like, this perspective finally. And literally on the very first day, they were like, well, the Baltics and Ukraine are all part, were part of the Soviet Union during this time, so we won't even talk about them at all. And it was a little bit heartbreaking just to think that this was finally an opportunity to hear about like my culture from a different perspective and just hear a different history and not be told anything about it at all. Now, another thing that you talk about in your essay is the similarities between Latvia and Ukraine. Now, you sort of mentioned it with how it's taught in schools, but can you tell me some more similarities between Latvia and Ukraine? Well, I was so I'm I write a lot about food um, for Madison magazine. And one thing that I was looking at is Um, some of the foods, and I just saw some similarities in even the foods that we make, um, just different dumplings, and there was one dish that I saw that had um, sauerkraut and pork, and those are two things that, like, Latvian culture, we eat so much sauerkraut and pork, and so I just see things like that, which might be really minor, but um, the food, I see similarities. I hear some Ukrainian songs, and I could almost imagine that if it was a different language, that it could sound like a Latvian song that I've heard. Um, just the fact that we have unique cultures. Um, and I think what I've just seen um, is how much, how much pride there is in the, those different cultures and the language, cuisine, the different costumes that you have for traditional folk dancing, um, all sorts of just different things that make both of the cultures unique and special in their own way. And I think it's really nice to see those similarities and kind of have that um, shared history in a way. Um, but yeah, I see it most, especially with the food and um, the like the singing and the dancing. So how has the Latvian community responded to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia? I know Latvia and Ukraine are not right next door neighbors, but they are part of the Baltic nations. Is there a kinship there? I definitely think have seen a lot of kinship there. Um, I think the communities that I've seen um, in there's all sorts of different Latvian communities all across the U.S. and beyond. 
But I've just seen so many people that I grew up with um, living in New York or Boston or Chicago or Toronto, wherever it might be. I just see them marching alongside with Ukraine. And I went to Milwaukee a couple weeks ago and I was with our Lat- the Latvian church um, in Milwaukee and I marched with them as well. And there were so many Latvian people there um, who wanted to show solidarity for Ukraine. And I see that in all sorts of communities. And it's been really powerful to see the Latvian flag alongside the Ukrainian flag, just knowing that there is that support there um, and sharing of resources. And I know in Latvia itself, there was a huge um, like song concert kind of thing. And they raised, I think, 1.2 or 1.4 million euros for Ukrainian refugees. And do you have just any final thoughts on either your Latvian heritage or on what's happening in Ukraine that you'd like to share? I think I know while what's happening right now is not directly impacting Latvia or the Baltic states, I think that it's really important for the Baltic states especially to show solidarity with Ukraine and be as supportive as we possibly can, can, especially while we're here in the U.S. Um, I think that if things were, are different and depending on what happens next, um, the Baltics could easily be in a situation similar to this. And I think for a lot of people with Baltic heritage, um, there's a huge fear that we're next. And so I think there's especially a lot of solidarity now because of the fact that we can really recognize um, what they're going through and empathize really, really heavily. And I know um, for the past couple of weeks, I have just been fairly emotional just knowing um, that this is happening in a country so close to home. And it's not just that it's close to home, but it just it's just really, really sad to see what's happening and have this intense fear for the future. And I think showing as much solidarity as we can Um, and speaking out as much as we possibly can is really important. I've been talking with Maya Invice, a proud Latvian-American citizen, about her essay in Madison Magazine about her family's roots in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. You can read that essay on the Madison Magazine website. Maya, thank you so much for talking with me again today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up. Transparency Talk attends an award show for transparent and not-so-transparent government. We get an explanation as to what daylight saving actually is, and Radio Chipstone explores our connections with the objects of lost loved ones. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Sam Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. 
It's Sunshine Week, a national celebration of transparency in government. And with Sunshine Week comes the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council's annual Openness Awards, which highlight the champions and opponents of open government in Wisconsin. Today on Transparency Talk, our contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, take a look at some of this year's winners. A quick note that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so seek an attorney's assistance if you have any difficulty with open records or open government. All right, it is every other Thursday, and I'm joined, as is tradition, on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? I'm doing great. Happy Sunshine Week, Jonah. Happy Sunshine Week, Tom. Now, this is a bright sunshine week for two reasons. One, the thermometer has finally crept over 60 degrees for the most part this week. It's been really nice and toasty, but there's a different kind of sunshine we are talking about this week. Well, first of all, we're always excited for Sunshine Week because it's the one week of the year where politicians pretend to care about transparency. But we're talking about the OPE Awards here, O-P-E-E. They're awarded by the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council, recognizing outstanding efforts to protect the state's tradition of open government. I won one of those uh, the first year that the Transparency Project was running, and I've had a couple clients in the past years as well, and same thing again this year. Yeah, and uh, I know from our prep talk, this is the first time in two years that you're holding an in-person awards banquet. Now, I have to imagine there will be somebody taking rigorous minutes at that at that banquet that will then be made public after the fact. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't run it, so I'm not in charge of that, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna run down some of the uh, the winners in this year's OP Awards. Winners, good and bad, because the OP Awards doesn't just recognize folks who have done good in terms of transparency and government. It also recognizes the uh, best of the worst, if you will. So let's start with the Citizen Openness Award. Now, is that Copy, 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 uh, copy. All right. Tell me about this year's copy recipient, Christine Brennan. So Christine is a resident of Fond du Lac, and she was just doing starting off with some basic research about a park redevelopment project there in Fond du Lac. So she made some requests and they were fairly broad, but they were also just for electronic communications, emails and texts. So it sort of been pretty easy to search for those. Instead, the city of Fond du Lac demanded she pay $1,000 to do that search. So she did some fundraising, got some concerned citizens together. They got that money, paid it to the city. A little bit later, the city come back, comes back and says, well, your total bill is an additional $6,800, and you're not getting anything until you pay that. So she fought back, got the fees down, got the city to adopt a new policy about archiving electronic records and social media, which is great. And she had some excess funds left over from that. And so she actually donated that to the Freedom of Information Council in order to create a litigation fund. Well, that is cool. Snaps for snaps for Christine. Congratulations on your Opie Copy Copy Award. Uh, that is awesome. Let's move right along here. We got the award for... By the way, I love these award names. We got the award for political openness, which I believe is pronounced Popey. The Popey <laughs> Award, which goes to the Winnebago County District Attorney's Office. Yes, snaps for the DA's office there in Winnebago. So this is the only time I have ever seen a DA bring open records law charges against government officials. And this was brought against the town of Amro, uh, eight counts of a forfeiture action in court 
seeking uh, fines of up to $1,000 for each violation. And just a couple days ago, the town pled no contest to those counts. The others were dismissed but read in for the penalty phase. And the, the court came down with a $250 fine for each violation, plus the court costs, plus statutory damages to the two requesters, and plus uh, $500 in attorney's fees to those two requesters. Going right along down the list here, because we got a lot of awards we got to get through. We got the Media Openness Award, the Mopey, which goes to Isaiah Holmes in the Wisconsin Examiner. I am a big fan of Isaiah's reporting on the Wauwatosa Police Department, and I understand that's actually what he ended up winning the award for, that coverage. Exactly. Yeah, this was a long series of articles that might still be ongoing for all I know about the way the Wauwatosa Police Department handled protests in that city and, and the way the police uh, labeled the mayor a target. They maintained a watch list of protesters and uh, Mr. Isaiah Holmes was on yeah, that watch I, list. We should add, he was included in that watch list, which I don't think he realized until he, you know, somebody out there fact-checking on this, but I'm pretty sure he didn't know that until he requested that through a freedom of information request, that list of people they were watching. So yeah, that was spooky. my understanding too, is that the records request found that information. Mm, that's the power of open records request, folks. Moving right along, we got the scoop of the... <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I can't make it through this entire list without laughing once or twice. We got the scoop of the year, otherwise known as the scoopy, which goes to the our friends over at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Yeah, and they had uh, a series of stories about Milwaukee, about exposed electrical wiring in rental units, particularly causing uh, some major fire damage and even some some loss of life as well. And the reporting has led to some changes there. We love to see journalism in action and journalism that promotes a change. That's my favorite type of journalist and journalism. And then moving along, we got the whistleblower of the year. Whoopie? Whoopie. Whoopie. Okay. Whoopie. I really should have prepped ahead of time getting the pronunciation on these right before we jumped right into recording. Tell me well, about it's the- more entertaining this way. Tell me about the whoopie winner, Douglas Oinsinger. So Mr. Oitzinger is actually one of our clients here at the Transparency Project. He is an alderman up in Marinette, that's uh, north of Green Bay on the Upper Peninsula border there. And he stood up to his fellow council members and filed a complaint with the DA and eventually a lawsuit challenging their routine use of closed sessions to discuss a whole bunch of water supply issues with some PFAS contamination and a bigger problem also just they have a bad habit that they tend to take deals that have already been negotiated and then go discuss them in closed session. And you are not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to have a closed session unless you have a darn good reason. And you better present that darn good reason to the public. And then the big winner, I they're, they're all big winners in my heart, but the big winner and perhaps the least surprising winner on this list, the big no friend of openness award, nope, goes to... Mr. Michael Gableman, former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice, and Robin Voss, who uh, just didn't wrap up. They issued their interim report on their investigation into the 2020 elections a few weeks back. Hey, maybe go back in the Transparency Talk archives. You can find our episode on that. We did uh, We did two weeks ago. For folks who haven't been following this whole ordeal, why did Mr. Gableman and Mr. Voss end up winning the nope? Gableman and Voss have been sued multiple times over by different organizations for records that they have not been releasing as part of their investigation. And frankly, if you look at their defense, they put on a completely amateur show in that regard. And they, they've actually had uh, punitive damages issued against them, which is almost unheard of in a records case because their replies were so flippant and didn't care at all about transparency and open government. 
except to the fact that they complained about how hard it is for them to get records from other government entities. I love the argument of, I don't have to do this thing, but everybody else does. All right. And so that does it for our rundown of Opie Award winners for this year. You can find a lot of this stuff online from, you know, uh, the Journal Sentinel's write-up of wiring, electrical wiring causing fires. You can find Isaiah Holmes stuff online. I'd highly recommend you look into more of these because there's more than we can cover in like a single segment here today. But as is tradition, I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Always a pleasure. And if uh, listeners want to learn more, they can go right to the Wisconsin Freedom of Information Council's website, wisfoic.org, to look at uh, get more details on those awards. Remember, folks, if you don't ask, you won't know. On Tuesday, the United States Senate moved to make daylight saving time more permanent. That will mean no more changing the clocks and no more awkward sleeping patterns twice a year. The measure called the Sunshine Protection Act isn't law yet. It will still need to pass the House of Representatives and go to President Joe Biden to go into effect. Supporters say the measure could allow for extra sunshine during the day and could help reduce seasonal depression. And this edition of To Be Honest, originally broadcast in 2018, hosts Sarah Hopeful and Eli Ratke sit down to unwind the mysteries and reasons for the time shift and explore some of the unintended consequences. Didn't sleep well last night? No, I just feel tired. Daylight saving time always throws me off. On this edition of To Be Honest, we scratch our heads and try to piece together why we still use daylight saving time. I'm so tired that I could sleep for a year. And before we get into it, let us clarify that it is daylight saving time, not daylight savings time. Just like how it's not a checkings account, it's a checking account. It's not espresso, it's espresso. It's bobby pins, not bobby's pins. It's just one of those things. Daylight saving has a long and weird history. From what we understand, it began in Germany and Austria in 1916 in an effort to conserve fuel after World War I. Other European countries and Australia followed suit and adopted the practice soon after. Fast forward two years and the U.S. was like, Hey, that's a pretty good idea. So the U.S. federal government adopted daylight saving time for World War I as well as World War II, but there was no standardization of peacetime daylight saving time until 1966. This led to quite a lot of confusion. Yes, and sometimes even cutting communities in half, even a community like the Twin Cities. My hometown. In 1965, Minnesota had its own starting time for DST, separate from the federal government. So, Minneapolis, of course, trying to follow Minnesota rules, went by the standard Minnesota DST time. But St. Paul, being the capital of Minnesota, went by the federal DST time, which resulted in a two-week gap where the two cities, who are only 20 miles apart, were an hour off. And don't even get me started on Indiana. But, you know, I will. To start, the majority of Indiana is in Eastern Time, but there are 12 counties that operate under Central Time. Six sit in the northwest corner of the state in Chicagoland, which operates in Central Time, and another six in the southwest corner. For reference, Alabama sits exactly south of Indiana and runs entirely on Central Time. And before 2006, observing daylight saving time was optional, and each county would decide whether or not to make the time switch. Ergo, it could technically be 3 o'clock in one part of the state and 5 o'clock in another. 
a two-hour difference within one state. We changed time zones? We changed time zones? It's a uh, common mistake. Not for the U.S. government! What a schmuck system can this guy to play? What, 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 what people, they just, they just, they, they, they reset their watches when they commute? Seems confusing. That doesn't even make any sense! Now, originally, the entire state was in central time until 1965, when the Interstate Commerce Commission decided to put most of the state into the eastern time zone. They just wanted to be part of the New York City vibe and in line with Wall Street. The debate over what time zone the state should be in ebbs and flows. In fact, the Central Time Coalition was made explicitly to advocate to move Indiana back into central time. They say it's too dark outside when children commute to school, and reportedly, kids are dying because of daylight saving time. What? Yeah. Because of the darker mornings, there's been a jump in sexual assaults, robberies, and child deaths on their way to school. For example, in one story we found, a 15-year-old student was on his way to the bus stop a solid hour before the sun rose, and after slipping on some ice, the bus driver allegedly didn't see the kid in the dark and hit him. He died in the hospital shortly after. The Central Time Coalition says that excessive morning darkness also encourages truancy, resulting in students falling behind and dropping out. They also argue that with e-commerce, it's no longer an economic benefit to be in the same time zone as New York and Wall Street. I can understand that there is a strong faction wanting to go back to central time, and it would make sense. But that said, the website for the coalition also has Comic Sans on it, so... TLDR Indiana time is confusing and weird. I need my sleep. I need it right now. According to some studies, the spring forward we experience every second Sunday of March does, in fact, have detrimental consequences. We caught up with David Wagner, a management professor at the University of Oregon. Professor Wagner and his colleagues looked into this. My research, along with a number of colleagues, has found that if you look in blue-collar settings like mining, that there's actually a 6% spike in injuries on this day, the, uh, the Monday following the daylight saving time shift. So it's, it's bad in a blue-collar setting. You're working with heavy equipment, heavy machinery. Working in dangerous jobs doesn't seem like the wisest idea with a lack of sleep. It's likely something that many people don't think about. It's only an hour difference. On average, the day following daylight saving time, people lose 40 minutes of sleep. But it takes a few days to adjust. It's like jet lag. But what about the cubicle life? One of my colleagues coined the term cyber loafing, which is using the internet to do personal things. You're searching for concert tickets, checking your personal email. And uh, yeah, and so we found a spike in that sort of cyber loafing behavior, people slacking off at work using their internet. And there was a, about a three to six percent spike in those sorts of behaviors immediately following that change on the, on the Monday after the time change. I just stare at my desk, but it looks like I'm working. Don't pretend like you haven't looked up your favorite vines and at least seven cat memes today, Karen. It's not just your coworkers blowing up the group chat with funny videos, though. Daylight saving time reaches all the way to the criminal justice system. That's right. A recent study found that judges hand out 5% longer sentences the Monday after DST than any other day of the year. Cranky and in charge isn't a desirable mix. But some states are thinking about changing. The commission in Massachusetts, they recommended that, that Massachusetts move to Atlantic time year-round, but that they only do it if the rest of New England and New York join them in making the change. So I think it will require large blocks of the country to do this, and perhaps as that takes place, then we'll see that the entire country will, will shift and follow a similar convention. So, should the U.S. opt out? It's difficult to say, because an hour one way or the other won't make a difference. For instance, an hour forward or back in Alaska won't change when you have 18 hours of night or 18 hours of day. You're not going to notice the shift. 
For the Midwest, it's a nice change of pace. We live in the latitudinal Eden for DST. Our days benefit from jumps and skips, even if our circadian rhythm doesn't. Do the benefits we see from getting more sunlight outweigh the cost? Disrupting ourselves twice a year and increasing our chance of danger seems a silly risk to take for a little sunlight. That said, it's not out of the question for the country to get rid of it altogether. Florida is in the process of doing away with DST and 26 other states are looking to follow in their steps. In Wisconsin, we live with eight months of daylight saving time and four months of standard time. And the irony is not lost on us. So why not choose one and be done with the confusion? To be honest, we don't know what's best. The statistics clearly show the hour lost takes its toll. Maybe the solution is we just make the Monday following daylight saving time a national holiday. Retweet to save a life. For WRT News, I'm Sarah Hopeful. And I'm Eli Radke. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's alright. The time right now is 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. Saying that losing someone you love is difficult is a massive understatement. It's not uncommon to find comfort in the things they have left behind. But what happens when you don't know what that thing is, who made it, or how it was used? This segment is an excerpt from a podcast entitled Refrangible, host by our contributor, Jonifer Fields. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, graphic artist Haley Zillman shares an object that once belonged to her dearly departed father. As a kid, I would I always like made up little stories about it. Okay, so this is a little coffin. It's made out of wood. Probably about four and a half inches long and maybe an inch and a half, two inches wide and probably about the same depth. And it's a very basic flat bottom but rounded top coffin and inside of this little wooden coffin are three little wooden people they're very primitive shaped people you know they don't even have arms or legs but you can tell it's supposed to be a person Um, and then in each one of them they have names scratched in them There's two that are painted with blue, like very dark, almost black blue paint. And those two are, one of them has the word Felix or the name Felix scratched in it. And the other one has the name Hank scratched in it. 
And then there's one that is painted like a yellowish orange color. And that has the name Eva. There is what appears to be words or a name on the front of the coffin with what looks like a little cross. And the front, I don't know what the first word is. The second word, it's definitely, I can make out many of the letters, but I'm not sure what the second letter is. It's F and either an R or a Y, I-E-D-E-N. So I always assumed it was a name. It's this strange little coffin that existed on a shelf full of other tchotchkes that my dad had. I remember being piled into the car to drive to some small town in Wisconsin or Minnesota, um, sometimes maybe even Michigan. And the, his thing was he, he collected stuff. Um, a lot of the time it was little metal soldiers and old toys, um, old tools, things like that. And I assume that this is how that came into his collection of things. I remember playing with it. In fact, I think I am the reason that it's missing the nail on the top that used to hold, because as a kid, it would spin open. The top didn't come totally off. Um, And I feel like I have a memory of of losing the nail and being really worried that my dad was going to be upset. I'm not sure I ever told him. (laughs) So um, I think I'm the reason why it doesn't work like it used to. But yeah, I, I definitely romanticized stories about this thing. That's for sure. But they weren't happy. Do you know what I mean? Like for being a little kid, they weren't happy stories. I wasn't thinking that like someone did this out of happiness more that it was it was a way to grieve lost loved ones that they maybe couldn't grieve at the time. Because I, I could never figure out why somebody would do this. I remember not thinking that this thing was creepy as a kid. Um, it actually wasn't until later as an adult that I sort of, well, my dad passed um, and there was a while there where I was, I was worried that I had maybe brought like bad luck onto myself because I was keeping it in my house. <laughs> uh, but I don't think that's true. I don't get a lot of negative feelings towards it. Sometimes I do feel like, if anything, I, I get like sad feelings about it. And that does it for our show tonight. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Sarah Hopeful and Eli Radke and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan and Shally Pittman engineered this show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I've been your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. 
Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thank you guys for listening, and have a good night.